Are you ready to bring your real estate game to the next level? My name is James Prendamano. I'm the CEO and founder of Pre-Real. And over the past 25 years, I've closed over a billion dollars in transactional real estate. Each week, I'm meeting with outstanding investors, high-performing individuals, and visionaries operating in the real estate space. These are the people that are actually out there in the real estate game right now getting it done. This podcast aims at bringing anyone's game to the next level. This is the Pre-Real Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Pre-Real Podcast. we got a treat for you today, folks. We've got a multifamily syndicator, podcast host, marketing consultant, unbelievable heck of a guy. We had a little uh, background chat that that maybe we'll touch on as, as we get rolling here. But we've got John Kasman. He's the managing partner of Kasman Capital Group. John, thank you so much for taking the time out today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to talk about real estate, real estate investing and all that we got in store. So I'm excited for this. Absolutely. So, uh, folks, as they they used to say, right, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. John's got over a hundred million dollar portfolio worth of apartments as a general partner, as a GP. Um, he's the host of the Multifamily Insights podcast and the creator or co-creator of the Midwest Real Estate Networking Summit. Uh, a hell of a resume. So we're gonna we're gonna get in the weeds here and cover some some of the traditional things, John, if we can. Um, but I'd also like to to talk a little bit about the moment in time that we happen to be in in the market. A lot of interesting mm-hmm. things happening on the horizon. Uh, before we jump in, I thought it was really interesting when we were. Uh, hoping you were going to join us on the show when we were doing our homework. You've got a heck of a marketing background, right? Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Did marketing for 15 years uh, was uh, marketing was my dream. Uh, you know, I I was a kid who uh, was undecided, you know, on, on what I wanted to study and all that stuff. No one in my family went to college. I was the first one to really go to college. And um, over my senior year, I had a class on um, communications, I think it was. And uh, I just remember sitting in that class and there was a question asked to me uh, by uh, my, my uh, teacher. And he said, you know, why do you think we have TV and radio? Why is it free? And I was like, well, so they can communicate to us. Who is they? I had to think, I'm like, well, the government, of course. Wrong. He said, advertisers. And I was like, huh, now again, this is, you know, maybe 20, 25 years ago. So this is a time where you have free TV, free radio, right? So when you think about that programming, what's well, like, well, someone's paying for it, right? It's going out to all these people for free because the people who are paying for it are the advertisers. And that took me down this rabbit hole of learning about public relations and marketing and communications and crafting a narrative and all of these different things and why it's important to have a voice and why it's important to have representation of that voice. Because otherwise, other people get to craft this narrative and you don't get a chance to really understand that. So um, that got me into the space. So I was in love with it, loved marketing, loved learning about products and services and how to convey the right benefits to the right people at the right time. And I did that for, you know, companies like General Motors, Nike, Coors Light, Mountain Dew, and other big brands like that. But the challenge was, um, I realized in the corporate world, I couldn't, I couldn't dictate what my career is going to be. You know, it didn't matter how good I was. Someone else always had a say on who got that promotion? I remember in particular, um, my boss um, ran into some issues and they they were going to move him out of that role and they wanted to promote me, but I was actually two levels uh, beneath the, the level of that job because of where they hired me. So they couldn't promote me because I would have had to jump up two levels. So instead they brought in someone else and I was running circles around this person in that marketing space. And it frustrated me so much. And I finally went to my boss and said, you wanted to give me this job. I get it. You couldn't give it to me. But now I'm not even learning or growing. I feel like I'm, you know, I'm basically teaching my boss how to do their job. And it just, it made me step back too, because I learned a lot about corporate and how to navigate that. And she actually built a great relationship after that and realized like, 
she was not trying to hold me back. But I did. Honestly, I felt like she was at that moment because I'm like, in my head, she had the seat I wanted. And it's like, she's like, John, I don't want the seat, but we need to work together so I can keep the seat warm (laughs) so you could take it. Uh, But anyway, uh, but yeah, I, I enjoyed marketing, but I also got to a point where I realized being in corporate, no matter how much you enjoy it, um, it didn't align with my real life goals. And for me, my real life goals are more about being a present father. Um, and that was top of the list. And I had to kind of make some changes in order for me to really fulfill that portion of what I was looking to get out of life. So those are some profound statements there, right? Um, being a present father and recognizing that the the corporate structure was not going to align with your values. It wasn't going to align with your passion, I would suspect, more than anything. Um, so many folks, and we talk about this a lot on the show, never get there. They never have the moment where uh, they marry up that clarity with intention, right? They they have moments of clarity. They have uh, moments of intention, but so many folks never get out of that pathway. And look, corporate America provides uh, a wonderful, wonderful way to build a career for a lot of people. Uh, but but it also provides just a, for me, it was crippling. It, it was so suffocating for me. I was unable uh, in my journey. I was much younger. I was in my early, early 20s with uh a very, very, very large company um, that will remain unnamed, but it it was so suffocating for me and great people, great structure, uh, wonderful company to be a part of, but I, I just couldn't understand. A lot of it was immaturity, but I couldn't understand why things like that would happen uh, just because it says it somewhere in a book. Well, let's change the book, right? How, how do we do that? Um what was it for you? Was it mentorship or uh, what was it for you that allowed you to have the, the confidence? Because, man, it takes a lot of confidence to step out and say, this world's not for me anymore. It does and it doesn't. Right. So we're all we are all a product of our circumstances. And in a way, I've kind of always felt a bit alone, you know, from the time I you know was basically entering my junior, senior year of high school. I was kind of beyond the point where the people around me could really give me clear guidance. You know, again, if, if no one around you has gone to college, they can't really help you through that process and help you cut down. Here's what you want to look for in a school and make sure you pay attention to these programs. There was none of that guidance. Right. So I kind of was figuring out life my on my own around 16, 17 years old. I say all that to just illustrate that I've kind of always been a bit of an independent thinker based on that. I've kind of read books and looked at other people and said, okay, I like what this person has. I like what this person is doing. How did they get there? Okay. What did they do to get there? Okay. I'm going to, I want to do that. That's kind of the way I thought and I looked at it. And what really happened for me, let me say this very clearly. I don't have any problems with corporate America. Uh, and I think that um, working in corporate is a great way to get ahead. If that's what you want to do, you can absolutely craft a career where you have either the family time. Sure. You might have to make some sacrifices and maybe you don't get that promotion, but you can craft that. So I don't want people to feel, I, I hear people all the time talk about this. Like, why are y'all bashing corporate life? Like, if it's not for you, that's fine. I thrived in corporate life. Yeah. I was really good at it. Okay. What happened for me is you have to understand two big things. One, I worked at a company that was basically the face of the last economic downturn. And I watched my boss's boss on TV, on CNN and cable news, talking about the state of the business when I just saw her in the office three hours earlier telling me to keep my head down. And when you're watching that, the panic, the fear, the anxiety that everyone has. I'm working at this big, huge corporation that was too big to fail and it's failing. And I'm watching the impact it has on me and all of my peers. And at this time, I'm single. I don't have kids, but I'm watching the ones who do have kids and do have families and none of them look happy. And I don't know what everybody's making. I assume everybody's making at least six figures, but None of them looked happy, right? If you're miserable every day you come to work, does it really matter how much money you're making, right? So for me, they didn't feel happy. They didn't look fulfilled. And there was one guy who was happy. It was an older guy named Jack. And Jack was getting close to retirement age, but Jack was happy. Jack would go, you know, he'd come in, we talk about, oh, how's your weekend? Jack was like, oh man, I went and got my, my, um, 
uh, snowmobile, went up to the mountains. I did this, I did. And Jack was always happy. And I love talking to Jack. And I started to lean more to what is Jack doing that the rest of these people are not doing? Well, Jack built an independent portfolio. That's what Jack did. Jack was investing in real estate and other things. So Jack had what they call FU money. Yep. So he really didn't care. And that kind of helped me realize, you know what, if you're going to do this, do it, but make sure you don't have to do this. And that's when I started to develop the passion for something else. And I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad earlier, and I went back, reread that book and it all kind of clicked. And it was like, you know what, I'm working here. I'm developing some great marketing skills. How can I leverage these skills to help me do other things? And eventually I left that job when my dad and a lot of other people thought I shouldn't. My friends were like, you crazy. And by the way, I was going to the Super Bowl and uh, Maximum High 100 parties and NCAA Final Fours and all these other cool little things. But I left all that and went to an advertising agency. And I went to an agency because I want to work for a smaller organization. I wanted to be able to work closely with the CEO and the founder. And I really wanted to grow my entrepreneurial skills. And I wanted to work on different brands so I can understand how different industries work and what's true across the board and what's different and how the CRM really work and what's point of sale. I wanted to develop my skills as a marketer. People always talk about Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and they talk about it from the sense of real estate investing. My biggest takeaway, though, is actually about working to develop skills. And he talks about you should work to develop skills. Once you've developed those skills, move on. And that was kind of the trigger for me when I left that big corporation to go to an agency. It was like, I feel like I've done what I can do with this skill here. Let me go develop this skill somewhere else so then I can really use it for my own personal gain moving forward. And then that company ended up going in bankruptcy as well at one point. So now I've worked for two companies that have gone into bankruptcy. So in essence, those experiences taught me that the risky thing was actually relying on the job. That was the risky thing. Yeah. You know, when you sitting there and you think it's a normal Tuesday and you know, you're hearing stories that the company is about to go under and you have no clue what to do. And now I have kids. I didn't have kids the first time. Now I have kids. And I had started investing in real estate at that point, but my portfolio wasn't at a place to just take care of me. So at that point it was like, Oh, okay, you know what? If I fail, I go back and get a job again. Right. I, if I fail, I'm back where I'm at today. That's not really a risk then if you look at it from the lens. I'm sharp enough and I believe in myself enough to say the worst case scenario is I'll get another job. And I know how to hustle enough to get a job. Um, one of the books I read, and I'm sorry if I'm rambling here. No, I this a, is beautiful. I got, a, I got a book. I've had this book with me for over 20 years. Um, let me grab it real quick. It's a book called How to Sell Yourself by Joe Girard. I've had this book for at least 20 years. And I read this book as an intern. And um, the, the short story, Joe Girard was the, the world's greatest salesman. He used to sell cars. And um, part of the reason he obtained that title is he really figured out how to be efficient with his time and his communications and building relationships with people. And there's a point in there where he talks about, um, you know, they, 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 cut the, they cut out the weekends. So he had to figure out now how to sell uh, what he was doing the previous year in five days, which he used to do in six days. And he figured out a way to do it and continue to hold that record. Uh, but he talked about little different things in here. And the reason this book is so important, or I wanted to kind of pause to get this, is as an intern, I did not believe in myself. You got to understand, I went to a state college, again, didn't have people guiding me really along that process. And it's not their fault, right? But I went to a state college. I got the last internship spot out of like 80 internships. I got, I was like 83. They asked like three of the people who said, no, I know it for a fact because the day it was supposed to get the call. I didn't get the call. I was waiting for the phone. My phone did not ring. So when you are passed over and you get a chip on your shoulder and you know, you got to work a little bit harder. I, I, I attacked that internship with the ferocity of someone who would not eat if they didn't go out there and kill that night because there was nothing else guaranteed to me. I was about to get out of school. All Everything else that I knew was about to end and I had to get a job after this internship. So I approached it with that mentality. And this book taught me also how to get a job after that. And one of the things this book says, a story I remember very clearly, it's like, you know, uh, there's a story about a guy who goes down to the shipyard every day, same time. And uh, they tell him, hey, no jobs, go away. He does this for like eight weeks straight. And, you know, most guys, you go for a week or two and it's like, oh, okay, they ain't hiring. 
said, this dude went eight weeks straight. They finally said, you, come here. We don't have a job, but we'll make something up for you. <laughs> if you are that committed, we'll figure it out. And for me, it's like, if my worst case scenario happened and I got to find a job, I'll make somebody hire me. I'll, I'll show up every day until you either going to get a restraining order on me or you're going to give me a project. But I'll make you hire me if it comes to that. So I think with that mentality, it's like, all right, then you can, well, why don't we try to fly then? You know, we can try to fly if you know where your, you know, you know where your basement is, right? You know where your floor is. Why do we see where the ceiling is at this point? Uh, I, I love it. You know, the, the marketing background, um, the real estate industry has changed so much that uh, one of the core principles here in, in my company is you, you, you've got to be a marketer today as well as a deal maker. It's not enough anymore to be an outstanding deal maker. You got to be able to market yourself. And when you can market yourself and you believe in yourself and you believe in the product, man, oh man, sky's the limit. Really, truly sky's the limit. You can't fake it. But when you have that skill set and you learn how to market in today's world, there's there's not much you can't do. So uh, so how do we go from that point to $100 million portfolio as a GP in, in multifamilies? What what was the first step? Talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, so so everything we just talked about was marketing, right? And I, I believed in the training I had done up to that point, right? I've I was in the New York Times at one point. I was in Black Enterprise Magazine. It was one of the top advertising and marketing um, um, uh, of, uh, professionals. So I had a lot of confidence and a track record in the marketing world. Real estate, whole other story, right? So real estate, I started brick by brick, man. I started with a duplex and that was more of a necessity. So we lived in one unit. We rented out the other unit. Then we bought a three unit building. So, you know, this is now we're going to, we're going to push this some more, our first true rental property, right? Now we got a three unit and I surrounded myself with other people. And that's really one of my biggest hacks. Surround yourself with people who are doing whatever it is you want to do. Um, they don't have to be your best friends. I'm not saying replace your friends, but I am saying you need to make sure you have a safe space around these people so that you can feel, you know, uh, nourished in the, the vision of what you're trying to create. Because if you're the only person in your friend group who's looking to invest in real estate or, or do something that other folks aren't trying to do, you might start to question yourself. Man, maybe this is riskier than I thought. Or maybe this, you know, maybe this, this isn't the right way. Or maybe I'm, maybe I'm overthinking this. Or maybe I'm too optimistic here. So you've got to surround yourself with people who are actually doing this so that you can get that affirmation of, hey, you know what? No, you're actually doing great. Or this is exactly how I did it. Or you know what? I talked to my mom. She told me I was going to lose everything and be homeless and move in with her. Whatever, right? Figure out who are those people just to get that gut check and that pat on the back to say you're on the right path. You know, and that was critical for me. So I got that once a month. I used to go to a, a RIA, so Real Estate Investment Association group. And it was like 45 minutes away from us. It was out in the Chicago suburbs. So I had to go all the way out there for this. But I went because it's how I got my confidence and kept my confidence high. Um, but doing that, I also met a young lady who was, she did her own meetup. So I started going to her meetup as well. And I watched her go from a three-unit property to a nine-unit property to a 90-unit portfolio, all within about 18 months. And when she went from the three to nine, it showed me this was possible because this is the first real person I've met who was actually growing a portfolio. You know, I've met a couple people at a property, but I've actually up to that point, I didn't know anyone who was growing their portfolio because it's just not something people openly talk about. Right. And yep. at that time, you know, there's social media, obviously, but, you know, Facebook was fairly new still people are using it, but it's, it's not like now where your grandma's on Facebook. Right. So you just didn't know. And just knowing this person who was growing a portfolio, it made it real to me and it made it tangible. It wasn't just these people in the books. It wasn't just these random people on a podcast. It wasn't just these random avatars on some, you know, uh, bigger pockets or some other forum. This was a real life person who I, I talked to six months ago and she told me, you know, about her three unit and the concerns she had and the challenges she was facing. And boom, now she's got nine and boom, now she's got 90. And I'm like, wait a minute, from nine to 15 might make sense, nine to 20, maybe nine to 90. And I said, can I buy you breakfast? I just, I just need to understand how you did it. And she's the first person who really helped me understand what it means or what it's like to work with other investors. 
I obviously had thought about that or knew about that, but I hadn't really considered it for myself. And she made me think about that in a way that I had never even considered before. I never thought about raising a dollar for real estate before. I thought you went out there, you saved your money, you bought what you could buy with the money in your bank account. And that's what we were doing. And having people like that in your network, it helps you expand what's possible. And that's why I say you have to surround yourself with the right people because it changes what you see. And then I can take that and then I can look back at the experiences I had in corporate America and the wins I had. And sometimes you just got to you just got to give yourself a pep talk. You know, we forget how great we are. You know, we always want to be humble and all that. And that's cool. But sometimes you need to pull out that resume and remind yourself who you are, what you can do and what you can accomplish so you can shoot for the moon and not just play small. You playing small helps nobody. Right. So you have to understand that. And for me, having that reassurance from someone, someone telling me how to do it, telling me how other people and they their network have done it that opened the door. And what literally happened next is about 30 days after that meeting, I met the person who became my mentor and my mentor ended up growing a crazy portfolio. He's got like a $2 billion portfolio right now. Um, probably like two and a half billion at this point, but uh, he grew that. And then this is now another person, in my network. Well, I'm watching this person grow from a $7 million portfolio from seven to 20, 20 to 30, 30 to 60. And it's like, wait a minute, what, what, what are you doing? Huh? So what is this syndication? How, how does this stuff work? So now these are the people I'm surrounding myself with. So when these are your friends and these are the people you're working with, you expand. So for me on a tactical level, what happened is I learned about apartment syndication, working with other investors. And a lot of apartment syndication is finding a good deal, being able to operate it, but also being able to raise and attract capital for these deals. And that's really where some of the marketing background was able to come into play to help me be uh, effective and successful there. So you're, I assume that that part of this journey was the inspiration for the Midwest Real Estate Networking Summit? Part of it, yeah. So that, that my partner, uh, the woman I was just talking about is the partner on the summit. So she and I, uh, we were out at, and we, we've become really good friends and we were, out at another conference in San Francisco, great conference, but we never got conferences in the Midwest. You know, everything in the Midwest is some dude on HGTV trying to sell you some crazy expensive coaching program, right? Come here free. It was a free, you know, one hour thing or free two hour thing. Then you sign up for the three day, $97 or $197 thing, just so they can try to sell you the $40,000 thing. Right. And, um, we were like, we had a great time at this networking event out in, uh, out in San Francisco. And we're like, you know what? I had launched the podcast at this point. I had some connections. She had a lot of connections that so she's really uh, active on bigger pockets. And we said, you know, I think we should try to, try to create something like this. She's crazy enough to just make it happen. We had a conversation probably at two in the morning, maybe after a couple of drinks and uh, threw around this idea. And within about, 48 hours we had the framework for the conference so and we and we did it six months later so we we put it all together in about five to six months um but yeah but that's that's key you know if you're going to go out there and create it create it and i would say that's the second thing you can't be afraid to create something that doesn't exist today right you've got to make it and I, this is the other thing i've learned from my mentors and my friends you know she had a meetup well guess what Part of the reason she and I were even close is because I was committed to going to these meetups. A lot of people I would see at these meetups, they would come to one or two in a row and then not the third one. But she was the host. So she was there every meetup. So I saw her every single time. So we spoke every single time. So we got to know each other. And when you're in that position, we call it thought leadership, just like you and I are doing right now. When you have a thought leadership position, you get a chance to connect with more people. You get a chance to talk to them. You get a chance to build relationships with people. And that's a very powerful thing to do. And for us with that conference, it wasn't necessarily like, okay, I'm going to build this huge brand or whatever. It was just like, you know what? If we don't do this, who will? No one's done it yet. And why not us? I mean, we're probably more qualified than anyone else we can think of. You got a good meetup. I've, you know, at that point I had launched a meetup as well. I had my podcast and, um, and I had some pretty good relationships as well. 
Um, and it made sense for us to, to try and go out there and do something. So, and I had an events background. Again, I was a marketing. I did events like the ones I've mentioned before, but I've done events for 10, 12 years. So hosting a conference was kind of a, you know, it's just another event to me. Uh, so again, when we sat and talked about it, I was like, oh, we can absolutely do this. And it made sense. The, the tools that are available to us, to us today, m- my Lord, what a blessing. I mean, it, it is, it has become uh, easy, honestly, to, to connect and to, to build a network if you're intentional in, in your purpose, right? So uh, here you are, you're building out this network and, and that's one thing, right? $100 million portfolio, raising capital, operating as a GP is something entirely different. So you you start, I, I guess, with what, when, when you first really made the commitment that this is what I'm going to do and this is where I'm going to go, you know, did you have a set of goals? I, I want to hit X in the portfolio. I want to invest in, was it, did you go right to multifamily? Did you consider other asset classes? What What was that piece of this like? Yeah, I've only invested in multifamily. I mean, even going back to that duplex, I mean, two unit, three unit, eight unit, 192, we've only really done multifamily because, you know, as I read all the books and all the research that I did, the people who built single family portfolios and then went to multifamily, they all consistently said, I wish I would have went to multifamily first, or I at least wish I would have went sooner. So I'm like, well, why don't we just skip that step? We just go straight to multifamily, even if it's smaller multifamily. So that's what we did. I would say that, you know, on the size, I don't like to get caught up in like unit count and all of that stuff because it doesn't necessarily tell the full story. Yep. But here's what I here's what I will say. I think it's really important to have clear goals. And those goals need to be based on the lifestyle you want to create and the lifestyle you want to live. And then I think you have to figure out what are the numbers that support that. So for me, it was like, okay, how do I replace my income? You know, if I can replace my income, then I have more control over my time. I can have all the flexibility I need to be a present father or to schedule, you know, just run my own schedule basically, right? So that was really the the goal. I, I didn't go beyond that because I couldn't quite see beyond that, to be honest with you, when I started out. It was like, hey, if I can replace my income through real estate, that would be amazing. That's where that's where the goal started. So part of the way we found a great solution is I didn't have to get it all at once. And initially I did. I felt like, oh, I can't do anything until I have X amount of dollars in the bank from real estate or coming in from real estate. But when you understand this business, you understand there's multiple ways to make money in real estate. There are multiple ways to structure deals. Uh, we just sold a property last week. I got a nice, you know, uh, mid six figure check um, to coming back to me. Right. Um, so there's different things like that, that you can stagger if you start to build a portfolio and get some momentum. Um, but part of it is understanding the bigger picture of it and being patient and knowing how to manage your, your expenses as well. So it was like, okay, can we live off of one income? What if we cut out these expenses? What if we did this? What if we did that? So we kind of built it up to shape the lifestyle, but then we could run and kind of grow the portfolio as well. I would also say it helps tremendously for me at least to have a greater purpose. Because if it just came down to, if I can make enough money to quit my job, well, then what? I'm probably not sitting here talking to you, Yeah. right? Like it's, all right, cool. I'm gonna go hide in the shadows. For me, that purpose means, I remember what it was like being at G, I don't think I said it yet, but G, GM, um, and looking at my peers and looking at, you know, folks who had put their careers into that company and not, and many of them are there and doing well. But point is, is that, there are a lot of people who don't have a plan B, who want to be present parents, who want to have flexibility in their careers and all those kind of things. And they don't have another option and they've done everything right. They've done everything that we are told to do. So what about them? You know, how can we help them? And then in particular for black Americans and black working professionals, particularly black white collar professionals, where if you, like me, you know, pull yourself up, first one in family, go to college, got a white collar job, corporate career. Well, guess what? I was making less money than my peers, at less net worth than my peers. Uh, no, nothing to do with them. It's nothing about inequality because I'm talking about net worth, uh, but also 
also about wealth. Mm-hmm. And we found this tool in real estate that is a great equalizer. And it's something that I think more and more people need to understand because you can't just work your way to wealth. You have to invest in income producing assets that have tax benefits, that have all the, all the great benefits we love about real estate. And for most of our busy professionals who are, you know, um, diverse individuals, you busted your tail, you got a great job, you're cor- climbing a corporate ladder. You don't have the time to go and learn all the stuff I've learned over the last 15 years about real estate. You just don't. I mean, it took me five years before I did my first deal from my education process. And it took, you know, um, another five years before I ever raised a dollar from someone. So it, it just takes time for, so for someone else to go out and try to do it themselves. Well, what if they make a mistake? I've made plenty of mistakes. I've made six figure mistakes, right? But I'm committed to the journey. Someone else that may wipe it out for them. They may look at it and say, oh, this real estate thing doesn't work. So it's better for me to be able to have a platform to teach other people how to do it or invite them to join me on some of the deals that we're doing. And that's a greater purpose because now I can help other people get the same benefits that the wealthy get from real estate investing without them becoming a landlord or without them having to become a real estate expert themselves. And I think that's critical because now I have a purpose that drives me. I have a purpose that you know can keep us going, a purpose to go out there and create this kind of content that is beyond what John can do by himself and has nothing to do with, what, with what's in my bank account. Yes, I'm going to benefit. Of course, I'm going to benefit. I'll make money on that. But the real impact is when you can help other people, that's when you know you're really doing something of value. And it's funny, I'm coaching my son's football team and they make us go through um, all this training. And one of them is on transformational coaching. And one of the things that they said that really stood out to me was, you know, um, a great transformational coach has an impact on his student athletes well beyond the football field, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's what purpose is. Purpose is about the impact you have on other people, not the benefit that you receive. So what is your purpose, right? And uh, they were breaking down the difference between goal and purpose, right? Goal is what you want to accomplish. Yep. Purpose is the impact you have on other people and helping them accomplish what they were looking to get. So it's one of those things where if you can understand your purpose, not necessarily just your goal, but your purpose, now you've got a, a higher calling as far as what you're trying to set out to do. No, no question about it. Um, for, for me, um, money itself was never the driving force behind it. And I only really started to excel in my career when a, a amazing coach uh, had framed for me that the money is a important part in you getting the message out. The ability that I have, and I have cultivated over 27 years now in the commercial sector of real estate, um, if I'm able to focus that message and get it out to the masses, think of the people that you can help in that to, to accomplish their goals, right? Um, and for me, that's where the connection came that you're you're talking about the difference between goals and purpose. So you know you know multifamily investing um, as a GP, which is where you're you're operating, is uh, is a complicated um, and a competitive space, right? So uh, and it's not for everybody. You know the you 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 see quite often people on social media talking about how they've traded in their nine to five and now they're you know, doing whatever it is that they're doing. Um, and it doesn't quite go that way. You, you being aligned with the right GP is everything if you're going to be a passive investor. So I was wondering if you could spend a few minutes, John, talking about uh, some of the nuts and bolts of how you're, you're identifying deals. Uh, what are the metrics you're looking for? Is it straight cap rate return? Or are you looking for upside? <laughs> you know, what, what hits the sweet spot for, for John? Yeah. Our philosophy has not changed and probably will, will not change very much, but we look for uh value add deals, right? When I say value add, what I mean is we're looking for properties that are already making money where we can come in with our business plan. That might include 
renovating some units or lowering expenses or adding some amenities. But with our business plan, we can generate more profits. And based on those things, we can deliver a solid return for our investors, usually looking to double investors return over the course of five to seven years. So we are typically taking a longer view, you know, five to seven year hold. If we can exit earlier, we certainly will consider that. But we tell everybody all the time, plan on being in a little bit longer. These are illiquid assets, which means you can't come in, invest, and then four months later decide you want to buy something completely different. You need your money back. It just doesn't work that way. So for us, we like stability. We like predictability. Uh, and this is where really my background in corporate America comes in handy, right? We do a lot of sales charts, a lot of financial projections, a lot of, hey, here's what we're on the trajectory to hit this month or for this quarter. How do we adjust it or what sales can we implement or whatever the case may be? And that's really what a lot of this is. We're taking a look at it. We're looking at what the current financials are. Okay, if we change X, Y, Z, or we did this, this, and this, here's where we think we can get the revenues or here's where we can get the net operating income. And based on that, the property would be worth this. And then we want to build in kind of our um, conservative approach. So what if we're wrong? What if we're wrong up? What if we're wrong down? How do we make sure we put some cushion in there so we can protect ourselves and protect our investors? Uh, we like B-class properties. And by B-class, what I really mean are good properties that are in demand. These aren't necessarily luxury, class A, beautiful, high-end um, apartments, uh, but they're also not you know, really rough, beat up, tough neighborhood apartments either. We like affordable places where people want to live, where they can't live, decent to good schools, nice amenities, good attractive location, accessible to other places. Places where people want to rent or can rent are, are happy to rent. You don't want to be in a place where people... You know, the only people who are going to rent there are people who have no other options, right? Because what does that mean for us as investors? Well, these are the only people we can rent to. So everything now has to be based on cost and being cheap, uh, as opposed to creating a, a comforting home where someone can be proud about where they live. On the flip side, we're not developers. We're not doing, you know, class A luxury, super nice everything. Um, we just don't know if those people always want to rent. Some of them choose to rent right now, but the market changes. There's a lot of competition from other developers, but that B-class space, that B-class space is nice because you have the, the widest range of potential renters. And if you're thinking about it from single family, think about if you are a flipper, you want to flip kind of the house that is the bread and butter of a city or a neighborhood. Uh, when I flipped, I was a terrible flipper, by the way. Um, but when we flipped, we were set in the market with our flips. That was a terrible strategy because we were the first ones to find out the market uh, had softened up, right? But if you've got that bread and butter product, you have the widest range of potential buyers. So you can, you know how to navigate it. You know what to do. You know what levers to pull. You know what range to stay in. Um, and that's the way we think about it for B-class B apartments, right? Let's take out some of the mystery Let's not assume that we are, you know, the greatest developers and, you know, rehabbers in the world. Let's give ourselves some cushion. Let's mitigate some of those risks and have a product that the masses are able to take on. And if we can do that, then we give ourselves a lot of chances to, to be correct. Yeah, no, no doubt. Meat, meat and potato investing. I love it. it it's uh, always proven for me being through three full economic cycles now. Uh, to be steady, Freddie, baby. And in real estate, that's the name of the game. So uh, geographically, are you investing in, you know, across the country? You know, what, what What is the focus for you? Yeah, we like growing parts of the Midwest and the Southeast region. So we do like to pay attention to population growth, uh, industries that are diverse, as well as kind of the political climate, less about, you know, red and blue states and more just ease of doing business, um, what are the landlord laws? Is it, you know, landlord tenant friendly? Just trying to understand some of those things. Why? Because we want to make projections. You know, sure. we want to be able to understand how our business is going to operate in that particular market. Our new business is going to set up shop. Do new businesses want to grow their existing businesses there? Would they want to add employees? Will they attract more people to the area? But we're always trying to look at demand. You know, where's demand at today and where's demand heading? So to that end, uh, 10, 15 years ago, political uh, threats in your analysis were almost never accounted for. Um, those legislative threats now, uh, are they come up 
just about with everybody I, I speak with, uh, that's a really important piece of weighing the potential and determining growth in the markets. Uh, I'm curious with, there's this confluence of so many factors now, right? There's decentralizations of some of the cities um, and there, there seems to be a buy-in from corporate America for the first time that remote working and not being in the office, um, which was, it, it's so funny that, that some of the, the younger uh, folks that work with me don't understand how frowned upon that was not too long ago, right? It just wasn't an option. Just a few years ago. Yeah, yeah you, you were in six days, sometimes seven days a week. And, and you had, as you had said earlier, you know, you, you put in the grind and you kind of climb the ladder and that was it. Now it seems that corporate America is starting to embrace this and say, hey, we can cut salaries. We can really slash expenses uh, and decentralize. And I'm seeing a lot of companies now opt for um, trading in those super expensive digs, you know, in, in Midtown. Uh, and locating in outer boroughs and and beyond these markets as the, the look look this is a cycle and, and it never ceases to amaze me how people forget that this is a cycle it's going to go up it's going to come down it's going to go back up again um, typically in these secondary markets these tertiary markets they're the first to get hit with the luxury right those are the first markets where uh last go around florida in 2008 you know it was red hot one day and then for two years you couldn't give something away uh i'm wondering what your insight is what's your perspective now has there been enough decentralization um is there enough of a shift now in people's habits where those secondary markets have now become primary markets? Is that what we're seeing here? Well, I, I think everyone's got to look at the factors they look for uh, and make that determination. For for us, you know, we think about primary, secondary, and tertiary. Typically, people are looking at population and MSAs to help make those decisions. Um, it's funny because from a multifamily standpoint, if you ask me, like the top multifamily market. For my peers, I would tell you it's DFW. Uh, if you look at population, you know, DFW should technically be a secondary market. So it just kind of depends on how you want to look at it. Here, here's what I would say though to answer your question. Everything is cyclical, and you have to understand the different levers that impact. Uh, for us, we're always looking at rent and rent growth. So rent is going to be a reflection of demand, it's going to be a reflection of occupancy. Uh, it's going to be a reflection of something that they call uh, absorption rate, which is essentially where they're building new apartment buildings. Well, how quickly do they get rented? You know, are they building enough apartment buildings? Are they overbuilding the apartment buildings? Are they underbuilding apartment buildings? So that absorption rate lets us understand, you know, where they're at in that development cycle. So when you get into some of these secondary and tertiary markets where they're not building very much, you're not as exposed because the demand is so high. So the key for us is paying attention to the underlying metrics, not necessarily just the results, right? Uh, if you only look at rent and rent growth, you can make some big mistakes. I'll take a look at a market like Phoenix, Arizona. And Phoenix is one where I've talked to some folks who are active in Phoenix. It's one that I don't know as well, but I'll tell you when I looked at the historicals, it's a market and a lot of West Coast markets do this. They're very cyclical. You know, when the market's up, they are hot, they're exploding, double digit growth on fire. But when the market goes down, they plunge and they take a hit and they take a while to recover. And that's one thing just to to look at. And again, I'm not picking on Phoenix. I don't know the markets. And what I what I have talked to people about is what's driving Phoenix right now is more fundamental growth because you have jobs and employers moving there. So I do think it'll be more sustained. Um, but those are the things you want to look at. I want to look beneath the numbers. Don't just look at population growth and rent growth and say, oh, okay, cool. This market grew 12%. Let's go there. Why is it growing 12%? Is that continuing to happen? Uh, I might look if it's, let's say it's job growth, right? Let's say there's a couple of big employers, Amazon's moving shop. All right, go read Amazon's report, their quarterly reports. What's going on in the business? Are they planning on opening up more locations there, more warehouses, more facilities, you know, or are they cutting back? 
You know, did they have a surplus? Did they beat their estimates or expectations? Or did they did they come up a little short and they're a little surprised that things softened up? I want to understand, again, am I expecting these things to continue or am I going to expect change? And I'm also not trying to do this quarterly because when we're investing, we're going to be in for what, five to seven years. Mm-hmm. So I need to pick something that's fairly stable. I don't want something that's hot you know, today or these last two quarters, but stunk it up last year, right? I want something that is on a nice, steady growth metric. And for the foreseeable future, the underlying metrics that are driving that growth should continue to be there and should continue to drive it. So that's what I'm looking for. I try not to get too caught up in the cycles of it. And that's why I like multifamily. That's the reason I'm not really in office and some of these other things. It's not that I don't don't like them. It's just that there are a lot of other factors that come into play and maybe, you know, understanding whether or not the time is right is there with multifamily. It's really straightforward. We have a shortage of housing. It won't get fixed till at least 2030. And uh, most people need a place to live in a rising interest rate environment. You're going to have less homeowners and home buyers. What are they going to do? They're going to rent. Rents are going up all across this country. There, It's almost impossible to build affordable housing without government support. So, you're not building apartment buildings and then renting them out for $600. It's not happening. So there's plenty of opportunity in many markets. That doesn't mean that you can't have good underlying fundamentals driving your decisions. Though. I love it. So uh, before I let you go, can you speak a little bit about the capital markets? What's the strategy uh, been and, and has it evolved with securing debt in these transactions? You know, What does that look like for you now? Yeah, I tell everybody, you know, the loan should match the business plan. So what are you trying to do for the property? Get a loan that matches the business plan. If it's a value add deal, when do you plan on exiting? Make sure that the loan you have gives you flexibility to exit at that time, but also doesn't force you to exit prematurely. So there's an interesting balance there that someone has to figure out to select a loan. Uh, I hear arguments all the time about fixed versus, you know, variable financing, bridge loans versus agency loans or versus, you know, um, uh, other bank loans and stuff like that right now. I think it comes down to the business plan. You know, what state is a property in? Is it a light value add? Is it a heavy value add? You know, what are you actually doing? What market are you in? There are a lot of different variables there that you have to come into play. Um, For me, I would say that We are always looking at mitigating risk as much as we can while also getting the right loan for the right business plan on that property. Uh, I love it. John, what's the best way for folks to to find you? You know, the best thing really is uh, I'm on LinkedIn, so you can connect, connect with me on LinkedIn. The other thing is we have a sample deal package on our website. So if you're curious about apartment investing, whether you want to be in the active side or you just want to be passive and put your money to work, uh, it's a good way to wrap your head around some of the terms, you know, the way the deal structure is, just some of the things you should be looking for. You can check that out at kasmancapital.com slash sample deal. Uh, I love it. I think the... You know, when when selecting GPs, folks, and we look at those cut sheets and those decks, right? Uh, I always remind people that those decks are made to look a certain way for a reason, right? Like I've never seen a deck ever that didn't work, and there's a reason for that. Yet at the end of the day, a lot of them don't work. This is invaluable insight. Um, I, I love what you got going on, John. Best of luck. And can I can I throw one, one thing in before we wrap? Because I, I think that's a really good point. One question that I, I think every passive investor should ask, and quite frankly, any investor who's looking to partner with someone else or even hire um, contractors or other potential partners, ask someone about a deal that did not work out. Okay. And you can even say did not work as planned, but the reason you want to do that is to your point, we all have nice slick marketing packages. I'm a marketing guy. I get it. Um, but to really understand someone and their character and how they operate and what they've learned, you have to ask about some of the challenges. And I could, I don't care quite as much about the fact that there's a deal that didn't work out. What I'm listening for is how this person talks about it. You know, do they take ownership? Did they learn from it? Did they grow from it? Are they in this deal right now? Or was this 10 years ago? Uh, I'm trying to understand and learn a little bit about 
who this person is based on that experience. And what I'm really looking for is someone who is accountable. I'm looking for a leader. I'm looking for someone who is going to help lead through whatever situations we may come up with. That's me as a not as a GP. If I'm part with another operator, I want to hear that somebody who's going to roll their sleeves, get in the trenches, be accountable. Hey guys, man, we didn't, we didn't account for this. This thing happened. Uh, try to fix it right now. Here's what we're going to do. I want that person, right? I don't want the guy who's going to point the finger and say, well, John, you were supposed to do this. Huh? Right. Even if I was, I, I'd rather have the person who says, Hey, you know what? This got missed. Here's let's try to figure out a solution so we can fix it. Uh, Those are the people you want to partner with, right? So I would ask that because you are going to be in partnership with these people for again five to seven years on our deals. So you want to make sure you're partnering with the right people who at least will do everything they can to solve the situation. And uh, I think for vendor selection partners, anybody in your business, I just think that's a great way to start to get a sense of the character of the people. And all I'm looking for is this person accountable for their role and what they could have done? Or do they just blame that contractor who did X, Y, Z? Well, who hired that contractor, right? I mean, at some point, you still got to take on that ultimate responsibility and uh, whether it's, you know, extreme ownership and that kind of mentality. But the reality is, is I want someone who I feel I'm going to be able to trust to, to do well as a partner, as opposed to, you know, just blindly hoping this person knows what they're doing. Yeah, no, no question about it. That's a brilliant point. And, and I don't care who you are. We've all had deals in real estate that don't go as scripted. That's what makes exceptional uh, investment partners. That's what makes exceptional deal makers is we're problem solvers at our core. And if you can't take accountability for the problem, you're not looking for the solution. We've all had them. And, and to John's point, those that take ownership, uh, for it and demonstrate leadership. That's who you want leading you out of it because it's just, it's all about solving problems. We've all had them, and that's what separates the great operators from the not so great operators. So great, great point, John. I really appreciate the time today, John Casman, uh, managing partner, Casman Capital Group. Tremendous, tremendous. All the best uh, of luck to you as you continue forward. Really enjoyed our time together today, John. Best of luck. Thank you. Take care. Appreciate your time as well. Absolutely. As always, everyone out there, please stay safe.